Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello, and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 201. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is hair care formulation expert, and the other half of the Beauty Brains, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hello, Perry. Hello, Beauty Brains fans. All right, we got a great show today. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about whether meadow foam seed oil is making skin less itchy, if you can get acne from a rinse-off conditioner, whether Estee Lauder still owns Bobby Brown, what an indie beauty brand is and we're going to talk about what's the deal with oils and hair but first let's get some of that inane chit chat over with that our audience loves so much hello valerie tell us what's going on let's talk about something besides the weather we're both oh. in freezing conditions well for you anyway not for me i'm used to it <laughs> yeah hey you know what i did over the weekend uh, you know how I volunteer at this cat shelter? Yeah. Because I can't have a cat myself because my wife's, my, my wife's allergic and such. Anyway, I volunteer. And then they had this thing called the Catcade where they have arcade games, but then cats are around. <laughs> so you can go play <laughs> these arcade games and a cat can be on your lap. It's, it, was, it was a blast. I wonder if they have those uh, around other places in the world. They certainly have them here in the city of Chicago. That sounds really cool. I would love to do that with my dogs. I actually wish I could take my dogs to work. That'd be really fun. You know, I have a friend in Texas, Austin, and people can bring dogs to their work. It seems seems disruptive to me, but uh, I suppose if yeah, your dog is very calm. A lot of places do that nowadays, but I mean, the unfortunate thing is I work in a laboratory and pooches just aren't a good fit for the lab. It's hard to keep those safety goggles on their heads, too. So. <laughs> yeah, my dogs wouldn't go for that. All right, are we ready to get into some beauty science news? We have a big show today. Let's do it. Well, Valerie, the first story that I saw was this story published in Allure. Um, and it was a story about... Uh, these this this brand called Sand and Sky and uh, what caught my eye was that they they announced that they have a an eleven thousand person waiting list for this upcoming new product launch. Uh, that That's two impressive. Are, wow. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the two products are a dreamy glow drops and a super bounce mask, and I'm sure it's a perfectly fine serum and mask, uh, but. I looked at them. They don't seem to have anything very special about them. I mean, they said there's some berries and emu apple and uh, kakudu palm. Uh, cockadoo. Me, oh, cockadoo. <laughs> cockadoo plum. Cockadoo. <laughs> oh, you're 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 familiar with the cockadoo? Yes, I am. Cockadoo. Or at least, or at least with the English language and then how to pronounce words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so those to, to me, those are just kind of claims ingredients they're probably not responsible for how the product is going to work but mostly i wanted to talk about that 11 person 11,000 person waiting list 
and why this is just kind of a marketing gimmick that doesn't really mean, I think, what the marketers want consumers to think it means. So what do you think about these uh, these product waiting lists? I mean, you hear 11,000 people waiting for a product. That sounds pretty impressive, right? Yeah, I mean, the brand has about 480,000 plus followers to date on Instagram. I don't know anything about this brand, so I can't comment on whether those are all legitimate followers, but 11,000 people waiting for a product to come out is pretty impressive sounding. I mean, it depends if the company just said, hey, are you interested in hearing about a new product? Sign up for this email list. Or did people really sign up to get special access to the product or maybe they already pre-ordered it or something? I mean, who knows what that term terminology means? Yeah, I mean, I think when you see some news about these waiting lists, like 11,000 people on a waiting list, so what happens is a PR person or at the at the brand or the marketer will put together this uh, news release and announce this, hey, we've got this waiting list for this product. And then uh, an outfit like Allure loves news like that. And so they publish that. And I think it's all of a way for the brand to convince people that the product is special. But you know, there's really no reason to think that these glow drops and their mask are anything but just a standard serum and a mask. And they're, they're probably not going to work differently than products that you can already get on the market. Now, the thing about uh, a big waiting list like that is, you know, the list doesn't really have to be 11,000 people who have already spent money, as you said, a pre-order. It could just be somebody who kind of signed up for an email list and said, hey, let me know when that happens. And there's a huge difference between somebody just signing up for something for free and somebody actually paying money, as, as, as I've learned on my other websites, for sure. But I think this is a way, it, you know, if people actually had to pay money before getting that product, I think it would be a whole different way. And the thing about these lists is that they don't really seem to mean much, you know, because co companies could make as much of this product as they want. That it's 11,000 people on this waiting list, you know, you could produce that much in like a single run. So and then if that sells out, if that really sells out, you could make the next batch the next day. I mean, this these volumes are not very high. And uh, the, the bottom line to me is that don't be fooled by these waiting lists and fooled into thinking that the product is really anything special if if they sell enough uh, uh, initially then uh, you'll be able to get the product soon enough yeah I, I mean we could say it's a marketing trick but I, th I think those are two words that are just implied right it's just marketing yeah yeah no trick yeah, involved be... <laughs> it's just marketing right. that's right just don't be don't be fooled just because you hear the publicity about uh, a huge waiting list uh, it's that that really could just point to a uh, production issue, actually. Yeah. Well, I found an article online. I am a little ashamed to admit it was on the Goop website. Uh, oh, you were uh, tr trolling around the Goop website? Yeah, I just like to look and see what she's posting about every now and again to keep up on what we'll call it current events and whatever she's she's talking about. Uh, I actually, I do have another confession to make before we get into this article. I actually told uh, the chemists in my lab this last week, and who knows what kind of blabbermouths I have on my team. So uh, I, I want to confess this to everyone. I actually, I bought some of the Goop products because I wanted to see what they're all about. See if, you know, they, they 
walk the talk or or whatnot. And while I'll sure I'll say product, product research, it's it's important for a cosmetic formulator to keep yeah. up with what's out there. Yeah, I, I buy a lot of competitor products. I actually really thought her formulas were very nice. Oh, well, that is that is nice. That's that's my confession. I really actually like the products. The price point is totally not worth it. I, I want to say that you could easily pay half the price and it would still be too much money, but I thought they were very nice formulas. You know, that's not really surprising to me either um, that, I mean, it's a premium priced product. They're going to hire a premium priced uh, contract manufacturer, hopefully. Um, the I think the big knock on on Goop really is it's probably not the specific formulas, but it's the way that their products are marketed. Well, not just the product marketing, but really the lifestyle marketing is yes. just not filled with solid uh, science and evidence. So anyway, I do like her products, but I was on her website, not the, the product website, but I was on her lifestyle website poking around. And I saw that they posted an article about Tata Harper, which is oh, a <laughs> an upscale brand. And they wanted to tell us why Tata Harper put 72 active ingredients into one glowifying <laughs> super serum. Come on. 72 ingredients? It's ridiculous. So, yeah, this product has 72 active ingredients. That's not just the amount of ingredients, Perry. That's the active number of ingredients in there. And so uh, Tata Harper has this 1,200-acre farm, and all of her products are made on the farm um, or land, I, I'm not really 100% sure of the story. And they create these really expensive products. This uh, specific serum we're going to talk about is $235 for one ounce. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Tata in the article talked about how she wanted to put all of these active ingredients in there to make the most powerful serum uh, on the market for your skin. And she would not, could not, uh, I don't want to say would not, she could not find a cosmetic chemist that would put 72 ingredients in there because oh, they thought <laughs> they couldn't make it stable. And she said, I'm not going to take no for an answer and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And so she did it. And she has this uh, serum elixir uh, so in wait. her line. So wait, she did it herself then? Like, <laughs> Well, it didn't really say. So <laughs> right. she found someone to do it. And gotcha, gotcha. I, I want to break this down in two angles for our audience okay. here. So the first angle is you could give me a bucket of 72 active ingredients and I can put it in any formula. <laughs> that is that's, true. And, that's and not a stable. challenge. And keep it stable. That's not a challenge. So I'm not sure what that comment is. I mean, of course, that puts the wow factor in it. Like, nobody would do it. No one would take the challenge on. And I said, I'm not taking no. I'm finding this super chemist, and I'm going to do it. Okay, you know whatever. What? That's fine. You, you know what? I bet you could do 75 ingredients. <laughs> I'm going to one-upper and hold the Guinness oh, Book of World Records for most active ingredients. I won't be the only Beauty Brains host with a, with a Guinness Book of World Records. Although you don't hold that anymore, do you? Uh, no, uh, actually, uh, it was surpassed my, uh, 50 miles while juggling has since been, uh, <laughs> passed, but, uh, you know, I'm looking to do a new world record in the coming year. Well, you know what? Let's put this, uh, serum to shame with the 72 active. So my other, my other point is if she wanted to make the most powerful serum on the market, you wouldn't do that by stuffing 72 actives into some liquid thin emulsion. 
you would actually use just a few actives at really meaningful levels that have claims data behind them, studies behind them. Think about this. If your formula is divided into 100 pieces, that's typically how as cosmetic chemists we formulate. You divide it into 100 parts to make 100%. And you have 72 actives in there. Surely, even if you used each of them at 1%, not that you would want to, you don't need to use all actives at 1%, uh, you only have 28% left to come up with for water, maybe some propylene glycol or butylene glycol to help with freeze-thaw. Preservatives, hopefully. (laughs) Preservatives, emulsifiers. You don't really have a ton left. And so surely her 72 ingredients, even just from a cost perspective, are used at much lower levels. And so really how powerful is that formula? You have 72 ingredients, but you probably don't have a lot of each ingredient that can provide any meaningful things except for irritation. You don't really want to assault your skin with that many uh, different extracts and oils. Natural extracts, oils, they just have a lot of little components that are intrinsic to it that can irritate the skin. If you listen to our episode a few episodes ago when we talked about an editorial post in the JAMA Dermatology uh, publication that dermatologists are seeing that natural extracts are actually causing a lot of uh, skin issues that they're seeing. And so Tata Harper's serum, yeah, is it impressive? They're using 72 active ingredients, I guess, but really... uh, I think you would have a lot more benefit to the skin just using a few things at really meaningful levels. But what do I know? I I know Perry and I have a similar formula uh, formulation mentality and less is more. So what's the least amount of ingredients you can use for the biggest impact and results? That's our formulation approach. And I guess for some people, more is more. Well, if there is a philosophy of like the more stuff you can pack onto your label, the more impressive it is. And um, there was a brand, uh, they're probably still around, but Philosophy, I think I'd see them at like uh, Sephora or Bath and Body Works. They always love to have the really long ingredient labels. Yeah, but they then got purchased comfort- by Cody, right? Ah, Many yeah. years ago. Cody buys, yeah. every- Cody buys yeah. everyone so probably. Uh, but then there's a company like The Ordinary that's that's all about let's go minimal. But honestly, when they say 72 active ingredients, I would say if you took one of those ingredients out and you had the same formula with 71 ingredients, there is no way any consumer is going to be able to tell any difference. I would even say cut it in half, 36. Right, right. You, you, could, you could cut it down to six ingredients and then people won't notice a real difference. And so that is, that's totally just uh, label stuffing so that there's things that they can talk about. And it really, to, to me, what it really says is that they, they lack the marketing chops to be able to play up some of the ingredients that actually work. And so instead of, instead of being able to talk about one ingredient, they just put tons of ingredients in there so they can talk about everything, which so means they say nothing. Well, let's get to our beauty questions. All right. The first one is an audio question. Let me cue that one up now. Dear Beauty Brains, I have keratosis pilaris on my cheeks, and I have tried many products over my 50 years. Currently, the best nighttime moisturizer is a pricey product by Fresh called Creme HCN that contains metal foam seed oil as the first ingredient. The hype of this product is noted, 
I also use Clarins Gentle Day Cream, but it is not as good as the fresh product. What is it about Metafoam Seed Oil or Lemnanthus Alba that helps with keeping my skin from itching and becoming inflamed? Thank you so much, and I really enjoy your podcast. Okay, thanks so much for that question. Um, boy, uh, Metafoam Seed Oil. This is an ingredient that uh, I first learned about when I was over at Alberto's sometime in the late 1990s. These farmers had this open land and they needed some crop to put in there. And someone came up with this idea to plant this meadow foam seed because it produces this nice oil. The thing about uh, meadow foam seed oil is it has good oxidative stability. So uh, in that way, it can be a, a pretty good antioxidant. It has a high level of these uh, certain longer chain fatty acids. Uh, so a lot of things that are over C20, a lot of C20, a lot of C22. It even has a lot of C24. Oh, yeah, exactly, C24. Now, the thing is that the higher you get in these uh, chain links, you know, typically the more moisturizing the ingredient will be. Um, in comparison, something like olive oil or sunflower seed oil, uh, these things are mostly C18. Something like coconut oil is mostly C, uh, C12 and um, um, some C16. So a, a lot uh, shorter chain lengths. So the longer the chain length is, it's indicative of a more emollient feel too. As an aside, mineral oil has chain lengths over like C30. So, uh, you know, it makes sense that meadow foam seed oil behaves a little bit more like mineral oil as far as emolliency goes than some of these uh, shorter chain natural oils. Yeah, so metafoam seed oil, I believe a lot of it is harvested in Oregon, if I'm if I remember in speaking that with That is correct, yes. Yeah, the suppliers. Uh, it's a really pretty plant, looks beautiful growing in a field, and they procure the oil from uh, the seeds and it really does have great stability data behind it. The challenge with a lot of oils is they tend to oxidize very easily. In fact, argan oil has some of the poorest oxidative stability uh known on the market as as far as cosmetic oils go. It, it has horrible oxidative stability. So it tends to oxidize very easily. And that means it has a very poor shelf life. So when people are using argan oil and thinking they're getting all these great benefits, if it hasn't been stabilized, which it can be a challenge to stabilize fr from a raw material perspective, uh, sure. it's just no good at that point. And so metafoam seed oil is known to have two, three years of oxidative stability on a shelf. Yeah, and so it's good in that regard. But as far as your question goes about whether it's the Metafoam seed oil uh, keeping your skin from itching, I couldn't find any evidence that Metafoam seed oil was particularly good at, say, anti-itching or anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, the, now, the formula has other ingredients in that that claim to help like rose water, but there also isn't any good evidence supporting that either. So as far as I can tell, based on the ingredient list, I haven't tried the product myself. This is a mostly anhydrous moisturizer that has a high level of oils. The metal foam is a light feeling emollient. And so the product isn't going to feel heavy, like if it was a say a petrol atom based ingredient or a mineral oil based. And so you might like it because it's pretty much all oil. So it's probably going to be pretty moisturizing, especially when you put it right on. I, I can't say exactly why this one works so well for you, but if it is the Metafoam seed oil, you might 
just consider getting some Metafoam seed oil <laughs> directly uh, because you can get like eight ounces uh, for like 17 bucks at, at one of the online uh, raw material suppliers. And you can see if that works for keeping your itching down. I, I don't know that it would, but, uh, you know, that's a less expensive option. Yeah, maybe the Metafoam seed oil, or I don't think that specifically, but maybe the formulation is acting as a protective barrier on the skin and preventing any uh, irritation from occurring. It's very hard to say, but I really like the idea. Get your own Metafoam seed oil and try it out. All right, how about our next question? So this question is very brief. KH wants to know, can rinse out conditioner give you acne? You know, it's funny, I, I saw this question and like right away, I'm like, oh, no. Okay, next question. <laughs> but I actually, I bet there's a little bit more to it than that. Yeah, no, it's a legitimate concern. And I've actually seen on a lot of d- different websites, blogs, uh, skinfluencers speaking that your conditioner can't give you acne, not necessarily on your face, but specifically on the skin on your back. So there's a condition called Acne Cosmetica, which is acne caused by products applied to skin or hair causing the acne. It's relatively common and it actually happens mostly with products that have oils in them. According to the American Academy of Dermatology, the oils clog your pores, which can then lead to acne. In hair products, you'll see the acne typically at the base of your hairline or on the back of your neck, or maybe even on your back where your hair has fallen or your hair has rinsed off after the shower. A little bit of bacne, as it were. <laughs> exactly, bacne. So it's possible that a conditioner could then give you acne. I don't know how probable it is, but it could be possible. A lot of people say uh, not just oils, but even panthenol can give you bacne, but I'm, I'm not so sure, so sure about that. Most good conditioners or even bad conditioners don't even actually have a lot of oil or have a lot of panthenol. Instead, they use a lot of cationic surfactants or cationic polymers or silicones to offer some conditioning effect, and those typically do not cause acne. And they kind of get rinsed off pretty thoroughly, too. Exactly. They're on your skin for a very brief period of time. I would be more worried about the pomades or hair gels or putties or other hairstyling products that have more oils or occlusive-type agents in them and are left on the hair and then can seep down onto the skin throughout the day. If you think that your conditioner or your hair products are a challenge for your skin and we haven't changed your mind, you can look this up yourself. The AAD, the American Academy of Dermatology, recommends looking for non-comedogenic products, but even then, I don't think that's really much of a guarantee. Well, you know, that's the thing about ingredients and whether they cause acne or not. First, we don't have a really good model for predicting comedogenicity of an ingredient. Comedogenicity just means the ability to cause acne. There have been lists of comedogenic ingredients uh, that were based on, I think, rabbit ear tests. Uh, but that those kind of studies do not correlate very well with general human beings. And in specific human cases, too, you, you don't know whether an ingredient is going to cause acne on you, you in particular. You know, it might cause acne for some percentage of the population, but it doesn't cause acne on you. And so, uh, but, but also there might be an ingredient which doesn't cause acne on most people, but there's something special about your skin which causes the acne. And so this is really one of those things where you can't know for sure unless you're testing it on yourself. 
All right, we are running through these questions. This looks like a makeup question, and, and you know, since I don't really use a lot of makeup or any, uh, why don't you take this one? Yeah, I'll take it. Hello, the Beauty Brains. I've been listening to your podcast for two years now, and I so enjoy learning the true facts. Hard to find the true facts at times these days. I would agree. I have a question regarding Bobby Brown 50 SPF primer. I think Estee Lauder owns Bobby Brown. True or not true? Also, I'm wondering where else I can find another less expensive brand of primer at a 50 SPF level out there. Elf has one, but it's way too light for my olive skin. Thank you for the great show, Jerry. Well, thanks so much, Jerry. Yeah, well, the quick quick answer on that Estee Lauder one, I looked that up. The, they bought Bobby Brown back in 1995. And it turns out she had stayed involved in the the brand and product uh, as like creative control of products until 2016 when she left the company. So now it's just owned full and clear by Estee Lauder. I will say that's one thing Estee Lauder does very well under brand acquisition. We brought it up on another show, but they just do a great job. There's a reason the companies they purchase have been successful and they really do allow somewhat free reign on companies to continue to operate as they always have and not really tear the company apart or try to get it to conform to Estee Lauder principles. Uh, so that that's really cool. Bobby could stay involved. I'm personally a fan of Bobby Brown because, uh, she had, uh, she provided the look for Kate Middleton's wedding look back in 2011. So I'm personally a, uh, Duchess of Cambridge fan. Well, just, uh, just before we get on to the, uh, the primer, just a, a comment about the big brands buying up these little guys. Probably one of the biggest reasons that companies change things when they buy a, a small company is that often the small company will be doing things which are kind of break the rules of the cosmetic industry. Like, especially I see labeling issues and things like that and claims issues. And so that's a lot of times uh, formulas will get changed for that reason. Or formulas will get changed uh, more specifically because when a big company like P&G buys somebody, and they did this when they bought Herbal Essences, they already had shampoo brands and they could get economies of scale But if they made all the formulas essentially the same. And so that's another reason they changed formulas. Estee Lauder probably didn't have to worry about the economies of scale, so they didn't bother changing the formulas, I guess. Back to me and Kate Middleton, uh, just oh, really yes. quick. <laughs> Enough about I'm the sorry. beauty brains. Um, uh, no, no. Do you know what makes me the happiest ever? Wait, uh, first, first we got to get it. so Kate Middleton. She's she's one of those royals on the oh other side of the pond. <laughs> oh gosh, Perry! She, isn't she married to uh, Prince William? Uh, Charles? Hello, uh, no, oh, Charles. No. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Stop. I am giving you a lesson. (laughs) Okay. Tell me about Kate. Everybody, I am so embarrassed for Carrie. Was she the one in the the Black Eyed Peas, Fergie, or something like that? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to move on. But I I do love it when I get mistaken for Catherine. It happens sometimes. So, oh, oh, I, oh, I, I did not. So, do you have an English <laughs> accent and things? Just uh, in case someone's like, "Hey, Kate." Hello. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't have one, but I should get one, right? Very prim. Okay. Anyway, we should apolo- apologize to all our <laughs> listeners in the UK. 
Yeah, but I I do like uh, her style, and she's she's very classy. And I I'm also simultaneously on Team Megan. So anyway, oh. um, enough about the royal family. We'll save that for when we're in New York together. Uh, so b- back to Bobby Brown and this SPF fifty primer that you have found that you really love. So I will say it it is really hard to find less expensive primers on the market than SPF 50 because when when you get to an SPF 50 level, that really does command a higher price point, especially when you add in the fact that there's a a makeup factor involved. There's pigmentation along with the SPF in this product that's almost kind of like skincare with makeup, right? So if you aren't tied to the pigment aspect of the Bobbi Brown product, I would recommend to use a primer without colorant. You can get primers with similar SPF values for a little bit lower price, such as the Maybelline Face Studio Master Prime Primer Makeup SPF 30 at $9.49 from Walgreens or the La Roche-Posay Anthelios Anti-Aging Primer with sunscreen SPF 50, which is $40 at Walgreens. And what's great about drugstore products is they offer lots of coupons and sales. So you can play the price game a little bit and stock up at a lower cost. By the way, I'm not affiliated with these companies or these products. I just, I Googled them. Uh, I have to be very honest. So yeah. yeah. And Alternatively, if the pigment factor is really important and you have to have that in the primer, you are going to be closer to the the $40 mark. It Cosmetics does have a CC cream that is SPF 50 plus and only $39. Additionally, there were other products that were tinted such as Bare Minerals. They have a $27 uh, tinted primer, but it didn't have as many tones available as the It Cosmetics products. So unfortunately, you will have to pay close to that $40 price point. The other option you could do is find a lower SPF primer than 50. If you 50 might be overkill, to be very honest, and you could probably get the same benefits using SPF 30. And there are way more options in that SPF level in terms of price point uh, with brands that offer tinted formulas, especially for olive toned or darker skins. But I am not a uh, a beauty bomb or a CC cream expert. So what we're actually going to do, uh, Perry, if you don't mind, is I'd love to post this question on Instagram and have our listeners who maybe have some options to recommend for Jerry in this area. We could post it on there and Jerry could get the recommendations. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Uh, this will be our first uh, experiment in uh, getting listener feedback for suggestions of products, which is not a bad idea because we don't like to suggest products ourselves just for reasons of conflict of interest and reasons that, you know, I don't really use a lot of products. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do use a lot of products and I really only, I mean, I'll tell you guys if I love a product. I mean, we're we're never affiliated with any of the brands we mention. We don't like to take sponsors. If you ever listen all the way to the end of the show, we'll tell you that, that we're, you know, we don't take advertisement money. Uh, We're self-supporting. So, uh, if I love a product, I'll tell you. If I'm just mentioning a product and I'm not affiliated, I'll also tell you. Yeah, and just because we mention a product and we like it, that's really no guarantee that you're going to like it or it's going to be right for your skin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, let's go on to question four. This question comes to us from Deepa and... Uh, She says, in a previous episode, you talked about clean beauty. 
I agree about the vegan or clean brands not being that much different from the bigger brands. But what is an indie brand? I've heard this term, but I don't really understand how it differentiates from vegan, clean, organic, etc. All right, indie brand, that's, that makes all the news, in uh, at least in the cosmetic industry, you know, trade journals and things. They're always talking about the indie brands. There's even a trade show dedicated to indie beauty products called Indie Beauty Expo. So what are these indie beauties? Well, indie beauty is really just a loose term to, that can refer to, uh, uh, you know, a startup brand. And the startup brand could be, you know, as bootstrapped as a startup that started in somebody's kitchen. And in fact, sometimes they just make the products in their kitchen and sell the products on Etsy or something like that, which can be a little <laughs> scary. <laughs> or they can be uh, a bigger, bigger organization where it's uh, some, some marketing person came up with a brand, they came up with a website, and then they contract manufacture out uh, their products, and so uh, they don't do the manufacturing. They they hire someone to do the manufacturing, but it's smaller runs and it's less distribution, and it can go all the way up to big brands that uh, I don't know. Uh, big companies are trying to hide behind this like startup indie thing, and you know it could be funded by a big company, but they don't want you to know it. So that's another part. So it's it's pretty loose. It, it now these brands are not necessarily just vegan or clean or organic, although that's the angle that a lot of them go with. But they're, they're also more niche brands where they might target specific consumers, a consumer that has a specific type of skin type or a hair type. But really, um, it's just a different way to talk about brands that aren't produced by Procter & Gamble, Unilever, L'Oreal, or Estee Lauder. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I think the challenge is there's not really a definition. I mean, some people will say that an indie brand is a company not owned by a very large company. When I think of indie brands, I think of brands that are new to the market. They are moving quickly. They may or may not be introducing trendy or on-trend fast concepts things that maybe weren't done before because they're small and often not taking all of the precautions a bigger brand might be. They're doing things that typically the bigger brands can't do just from a regulatory perspective or the way that they're being scrutinized. And they often have a very fast following. And from a corporate perspective, I will say that they're not seen as you know, in air quotes, uh, corporate. So I think indie can mean a lot of things. They can sell a lot of different types of products. And I don't think there's one exclusionary term for, for the, that doesn't apply to these companies. You make a really good point there. They can typically launch their products more quickly uh, because they might cut corners on safety testing or uh, they'll, they'll take risks that a big company really can't take because they would face litigation. A lot of times these, these small companies, you know, they don't have any money. So if you try to sue them, there's there's nothing to sue. The other thing that you find about these indie brands is that they're, they're usually distributed uh, online. Uh, Amazon has created really this space where anybody can get an idea and launch a line and sell it 
through the Amazon marketplace or sell it through their own website. And that was one of the biggest challenges of starting your own product line because before you used to have to know a buyer at Walgreens or Target or one of the big stores or some store around your area. And that was the only way you could distribute it. Nowadays, you can distribute things online, and that's opened up a a lot more uh, ability for people, at least in the United States, to create these indie brands. Like Drunk Elephant, for example, I would say that was an indie brand. It was just started by somebody, but it just got bought out by somebody. Um, I forget. Is it Estee Lauder just bought them? I think Unilever bought them, right? Oh, that you're right. Uh, We forget. Old news. I don't know. (laughs) Damn. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that was only like four shows ago. How am I supposed to <laughs> Well, just so many acquisitions are happening. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, so the so the idea is now uh, Unilever bought them. So are they an indie brand anymore? <laughs> Probably not, right? Yeah. I, I do also want to mention something I forgot to mention a couple of moments ago was that indie comes from independent, independent brands, because when this term came about, they, it was a, so the terminology was associated with brands, not tied to lar- larger organizations. And I just don't think that's true anymore. Something interesting you mentioned earlier, Perry, was that some of these large brands can create indie brands and pretend to, to be this small niche boutique brand. And really it's a huge, uh, owned by a huge conglomerate. I've there was one the other day in Sephora where I was like, "Daggone, that is owned by L'Oreal." And I was just super annoyed because you couldn't find that anywhere on the shelf. And when I almost bought this shampoo thinking I was supporting this company doing a really cool thing, and I looked it up and I was like, "Ugh, no way." Those big companies they do. They can be a little bit crafty about obscuring their ownership. <laughs> I know, that like uh, Karastas, for example, uh, you wouldn't know that they're owned by a bigger company. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they do not make it obvious. Bigger equals L'Oreal. That reminds me when Suave they created this influencer brand Evaus, which is oh, Suave, Suave spelled backwards. backwards. Yeah. yeah. And everyone was like, this is so cool. They're doing the right thing, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, JK, it's suave. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was like the biggest uh, catfish in the, in the world. Our last question. Kinski Hair on Instagram asks, hi there. I'm a current hairstylist. With all the YouTubing, are oils beneficial to healthy hair and hair growth? I see a lot of DIY products and love the idea of using natural products, but is this wise? I try to promote healthy hair and want to use what is best, especially when it comes to relaxed or natural hair. The beauty business has become so overly saturated with products, it's overwhelming. Well, I agree. There certainly is a lot on the market, and how do you know what is what, what's working, is it worth the money, and thankfully, you have Perry and Valerie. That's right. The beauty brains. (laughs) So uh, there is no harm, certainly no harm in using oils for hair. Except maybe for that acne problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you have an acne problem on your scalp, don't do it. Um, Or stop doing it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oils provide the hair with lubricity, which uh, helps make it more combable, makes it look shinier, makes it look healthier because the fibers are more aligned uh, when you comb them. But unfortunately, oils don't do anything to actually help hair grow or grow faster. So in your question, are oils beneficial to healthy hair? Yes, they are beneficial to the perception of healthy hair. 
but they are not beneficial to hair growth. However, I do want to give one little catch to that statement uh, because oils do, yeah, because oils do provide lubrication to the hair. It reduces the amount of hair breakage that you have. And so when your hair is breaking less, your hair appears to be longer or it appears to be growing because it's not breaking anymore. So I have actually had personal uh, friends and I've even uh, been a part of claims testing where we do repeat repeat grooming with oils. Uh, So I have the, the analytical evidence and the anecdotal evidence that oil does help lubricate hair. It helps it break less. And my friends are very happy with their hair growth using oils on their hair. That sounds like a a, a perfect claims evidence where, yes, it's not really making your hair grow. It just makes it look like it's growing. So, well, so that's, that how, that's how claims and marketing works. So there you have it. Exactly. Exactly. All right, and there you have the end of our show. Do you hear that music? Uh, I sure do. That's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, well, you know what? I thought I was looking today, and I saw that we have a lot of patrons, and I just thought we should thank our top patrons. So thank you, Lauren, Kimberly, Emily, Marie, Misty, Stephanie, and Belladonna1307. And if you wanted to support the Beauty Brains on Patreon, uh, that is really the best way to do it. Uh, this is going to help keep our show free of ads and prevent us from endorsing products and then getting kickbacks from companies when you buy it. Also keeps me out of a corporate America job. So uh, if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Meanwhile, I'll continue to stay in corporate America because I love working. <laughs> if oh, you guys you. get <laughs> if you guys get a chance, go over to iTunes, leave us a review that will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Additionally, you can send us your questions by audio. I love the audio questions. They're guaranteed to get on the show. Just use the voice memo app on your iPhone or your Android phone, whatever that's called. I have an iPhone, so I don't know record the message and email it to us at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. And you can follow us on our various social media accounts. We have a Facebook page. I get some questions there every so often. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And on Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. And I want to just see if anyone's listening at the end of the show. I do have a special announcement to make. Perry and I are going to be together in two weeks in New York City for the annual scientific seminar for the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. I'm the chair for the event, so I have to be there. Perry's the past president, so he also has to be there. And what we're going to do for you is a live Instagram. So we'll put it on our Instagram page. You can catch us live, ask us your beauty questions, and we'll be happy to answer them for you. Wow, does that mean I have to shave and comb my hair? You don't have to if that's what you want to do. (laughs) You guys guys will get to see what Perry looks like in real life. And you guys will get to see how much I look like uh, the Duchess of Cambridge. (laughs) apparently she was the one in the black eyed peas group wasn't she (laughs) exactly you're right that's her well thanks again everyone for listening and remember be brainy about your beauty thanks everyone kittens